Welcome to Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Hello and welcome back to Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where today we will be talking about the third test and having a, a, a little look at what's happened so far in the series between India and Australia and the possibilities going forward as to who may or may not be playing, where the next test after that might be played, what the result could be going ahead, you know, just discussing back and forth things that we could be seeing coming up in the future. Um, for those who are not really interested in cricket at all and have tuned in for one of my other quirky parts of the uh, episodes that I do, uh, you're out of luck and probably should best just turn this off straight away. Or better yet, just let it run. And then at least I get on my little um, screen at the end of the day, it shows that I've had another listener, uh, even though if you haven't listened at all. It looks good for my stats. We know stats lie, but I don't mind in this case. Anyway, enough from me at the start. Let's go in and talk about what's already happened. So we're two tests into this series between India and Australia and I guess at the start of the series what we were thinking was is that from two years ago Australia had to be stronger than they were then because we had Smith coming back in and Warner coming back in and that therefore even though it was a 2-1 loss to us last time that we should be able to reverse that. Well, we haven't had Warner because of injury, and we haven't had Smith because he scored nine runs in three innings, and we are currently at 1-1 after two tests. Now, to be honest, it it shouldn't even be that. It should be 2-0 to India, Um, and they have pretty much won more sessions than Australia has over the course of those two test matches. In fact, if you look at it, there's probably three major talking points over those two tests, or certainly the one test, the first test, that could have changed the result of this series so far. And look at the first point, which would be the run out of Virat Kohli in that first innings on the first day, um, where Australia had made three breakthroughs, but the partnership between Kohli and Rahane had certainly brought the game back to life, it had brought India back into it. And they'd reached three for 188 in the 77th over. So still three overs away from a new ball. Australia bowling so slow they weren't going to get 90 overs in. But I think the point at the time was that India must have been thinking, well, we get through these three overs, we get the second new ball, the pink ball under lights. And if they could find a way to get through that evening, um, going in three down or, or let's say four down for... 220, then the following day, the the ball would have been older, they're back out in the daylight, and 300 plus was a very realistic total for them to be looking at in their first innings. And imagine how the test could have gone if that was the case. Um, and then Rahane had an absolute brain snap hitting it straight to Pat Cummins, and you look back on it on the two years previously, 
same thing on the first day in Adelaide, which was in those days a day test because India wouldn't play under lights. Same thing happened. They hit it straight to Pat at the end of the day, except he was at mid-on, and he ran in and made that amazing run-out direct hit at the bowler's end. Now, today, well, today, <laughs> this, this year, not actually today, Rahani's hit it straight to Pat Cummins, said yes, yes, and then no. Coley's halfway down the wicket. Pat Cummins just strolls in, throws it to Nathan Lyon over the stumps, and, and there's your wicket. And that it's such a waste, an absolute waste. The three for 188 makes it four for 188. Then Rahani goes three overs and the three hours later in the first over of the new ball to LBW to Stark and <laughs> Burns review in the way. And suddenly they were six down at stumps and they got bowled out for 244 early on that, that second afternoon. So a complete changing of the whole game and therefore the series in that one moment. And you really wonder how far India could have been in front if that had been the case. The second part of that then comes down to India's dropped chances on that second day when Australia was batting. Not only the fact that they were just shockingly bad, but they were immensely costly. Uh, Labashain was dropped on the boundary by Bumrah when he was on 12, and the score was 2 for 31, and India were on top. A 3 for 31, it could have been anything. But then, even then, Privet Shaw dropped him again at 2 for 40. So it could have been 3 for 40. The fact he went on to make 47 himself in a pretty ordinary innings, but wasn't dismissed until the score then reached 7 for 111, is a massive change in the way that game, that innings sort of took place. And then on the same score, at 7 for 111, Tim Payne's on 26 and was dropped an absolute sitter by Argawal down there at square leg that then went for four as well. So should have been eight for 111. Uh, and really, stickly at that point, there's no doubt that India would have led by at least 100, having only made 244 in the first innings. And instead, Tim Payne went on and added 47 to his own total and finished on 73 not out. Australia's final three wickets added 80. Uh, to get the total to 191, and the deficit's only 53 instead of 100 plus. Um, just bonehead mistakes. And then you come to the third day, and it was just 90 minutes of madness. You know, India went from one for 15 overnight uh, to nine for 36, which was all out because their last batsman had his arm shattered. So. It was amazing, and amazing cricket, don't get me wrong. I mean, they just couldn't couldn't not nick the ball, and the Australian bowlers were just absolutely all over them. And it's amazing how often, more and more in recent times, that we've seen such sessions occur in Test cricket, and, and not just from average teams. We saw Australia do it against South Africa in South Africa, and then the very next inning, South Africa did against Australia. They both fell for, you know, they lost enormous amounts of wickets really quickly. Um, Australia, unfortunately, against England in 2015 when uh, Broad went through us. Uh, England then had the same thing happen to them against New Zealand uh, in 2018, which was quite amazing, when it looked like they were going to get the lowest ever score at one stage, I think the eight for 26 at one stage. And then, of course, England again against Australia in 2019 at um, Headingley, which we don't really want to go too far beyond what happened in that innings to what happened in the final innings of the match. So 
yeah, whether whether it's a synchronicity of the bowling in those sessions or it's a it's a result of batsmen being unable to cope defensively, it really does seem to happen more and more uh, on a more frequent timeline than it ever did before. And like I said, it's not they're not bad teams that are doing it. They're not average teams that are doing it. They're, they're good teams that are doing it. So anyway, you had all those three things together and you look at the fact that India only defended 89 runs in that fourth innings of the first test, where realistically uh, it could have been at least 150 if they just if they just held the catches. It could have been 150. And then if Kohli doesn't get run out, you're looking at 200-plus lead and do Australia get that batting fourth against the pink ball? In the long run, that cost India the test. And this is the big thing. It could be 2-0. It, absolutely. And it really, you know, it feels... It does feel like it's 2-0. So I guess India will be on a high and Australia will be, I suppose, looking at it, thinking, well, we're only, it's only 1-1. We're not out of this. But for all intents and purposes at the moment, India are just flogging the crap out of them. So having looked at how India blew the first test, what exactly does that say about Australia's effort in Melbourne at the MCG? Um, honestly. <laughs> so Coley goes home. So they lose their best batsman. He's gone and won't be coming back. And India, in their wisdom, decide they're only going to play five specialist batsmen, including one on debut, Shubman Gill. So, five specialist batsmen. You've got Richard Pan's been brought back in to keep and bat at six. And then you've got Jadeja and Ashwin at seven and eight, who, you know, are, are good tail, you know, lower middle order batsmen, I suppose is the best way to put them. But they're not the kind of guys you think should go out and score the kind of runs that they need to, to where they were actually being put in the order. So Australia had to be thinking, we get to number five and we're going to run through this Indian batting lineup. It, it couldn't have been any other way. And yet, Ravi Jadeja scores 57 in India's first innings, and it's the second highest innings of the match. And it's more than any Australian batsman scored in either innings of the test match. So not only is that damning of the way our guys bowl to him, and I don't want to be having a crack at our bowls because they've done a pretty good job so far, but the way they bowled to him and allowed him to get to 57 is, you know, that's, that's firstly, that's disappointing. But secondly, it's absolutely damning of our batsmen and their, and their output, not only for the second test, but for the series overall so far. It's been just amazingly average. Then we had Australia also dropping six catches in India's first innings. So they dropped Shubman Gill on five. That was by uh, Manus Labashane. And then Gill was again dropped on 28 by Tim Payne, which, to be fair, was a pretty tough chance. But Shubman Gill ends up making 45. So he should have been taken by Labashane. He makes another 40-odd. Richard Pant was dropped on 26 by Cameron Green. Fortunately, that didn't cost us too many. He only made 29. But then Rahane's dropped by Steve Smith 
on 73, which is a catch that you would expect Smith to eat up. And then at the end of the day, the last ball of the day, Rahane was dropped again by Travis Head on 104. He went on the next morning, got to 112 before getting out, but important overs were eaten up on the next day by him and Jadeja batting together. Then Ashwin gets dropped by Labashane on four. He only goes on to make 14, but again, important runs were made while he was out there and time was eaten up. At the height of its powers, Australia never dropped catches like that, and certainly not in those numbers in an innings. You might drop a catch here, and everyone drops catches. But to drop six in an innings, and important ones that have cost them a great deal of number of runs, it just didn't happen. And then you've got our guys who just were just blown away. On the first day, you wonder how we get to, we were three for 30-odd, and we'd lost our two openers and we'd lost Steve Smith. And then you get to the point where uh, Travis Head and Marnus Labashane have put together a pretty reasonable partnership. Uh, I think 86 from memory, 86 to get to a four, to three for 124 before Travis again, not threw his wicket away, but again played the kind of shot that you, know, you hope that he doesn't do. And from there we fall over. We go from three for one twenty four to all out for one ninety five, and that that's exactly the kind of problem that we're doing at the moment. We're just not able to put on decent partnerships constantly, and we're doing it without Warner, who hasn't been cited because of injury, and Steve Smith has just been held in check beautifully by the Indian bowlers, by Boomer and by Ashwin. So we're doing it without our two best batsmen and the rest of our batting order, once again, is not doing the job. And 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 it's one of those things where Smith and Warner have been papering over the cracks in our batting for years. Like, for years. Since Michael Clark retired, um, he's those two have just scored all of our runs, all of our centuries. And we had Marnus Labuschagne there for a period of 12 months who came out of the blocks and, and did you know amazing things last summer at home and, and the stuff he'd done in England. Now, he might be getting to 40 at the moment, but he looks terrible. and He looks like he could fall over at any time. And that's I'm, I'm not trying to criticise him, but I'm just saying that you know he can't keep doing it forever. And Smith was never going to be able to score runs forever. And Warner showed in the ashes he can't score runs forever. And we've got to have our batsmen who are there doing the job and scoring the runs as well. But we haven't got that at the moment. And... It's it's difficult because you want to give younger guys a go, and you, we need to we need to give Cameron Green his chance to to be the number six that we want him to be, to be the number six who's going to score us runs and average forty with a bat, and then be able to bowl at one hundred and forty, one hundred and thirty five clicks and take wickets. Australia's been looking for an all rounder for you know forever, really, um, and we've had pretend ones, and I'm going to use that name Shane Watson again as a pretend all rounder who never really did the job that we needed him to do, and Cameron Green could be that guy. But we've got to give him time, which means that the other guys in the order have to do their job. Now, whether that's Travis Head or Matthew Wade or Labashane or whoever else we might get to open, these guys have got to contribute or else we're going to struggle. And the Indian bowling has been terrific. I mean, you look at them now, we're going into the third test, but they've lost 
They've lost their number one batsman and their captain in Coley. They've lost Mohammed Shami because he, he shattered arm in uh, Adelaide. They've now lost Umesh Yadav with, uh, with a leg injury. So they're going into this next test match trying to find another fast bowler. Now, they've got a couple of good ones. This Natarajan, who they had in their one-day squad, has come into the test squad, and he might even get a test debut. And he's pretty handy. So they've still got guys coming in and doing the job. Australia needs to have that happen. Now, Australia's bowling has been good, um, not perfect. Nathan Lyon hasn't quite been able to get through like he has in the past. But the opportunity is there if our batsmen can make some runs and if we can stop dropping silly catches. Uh, Melbourne won in uh, India won in Melbourne far too easy and it shouldn't be allowed to happen again and somehow our batsmen have to stand up. Apart from all the kerfuffle that's going on about firstly whether Sydney should have had a test uh, with the COVID outbreak they've had or whether Melbourne should have had two tests and then go straight to Queensland or whether Sydney will end up with two tests. More importantly, for Australians, we're wondering about whether is David Warner going to be fit and if he is, is he going to play? I think we're in a position that is unique where there's a lot of talk about or has been, a lot of talk about Warner and about his suitability to play in the Australian Colours again after Sandpaper Gate and things like that. And after the Ashes, whether he could ever regain his form and become the player that he needed to be. But once again at home last season, he just showed how dominant he can be. And everyone felt as though his inclusion in the team was going to be a massive difference for Australia in this series. Now, we're without him... Um, and with the demise of Joe Burns and uh, the fact that he just got to the stage where he had absolutely no idea what he was going to do to try and even hit the ball, we're at a point where we've still got Matthew Wade, who is a makeshift opener, and we don't know if he's going to fill that role again for the rest of the series or whether we're going to find two new openers for the test team. I would suggest, given that we have only made scores of 191, 195 and 200 in our three completed innings that we absolutely desperately need two opening batsmen. And that's that means Matthew Wade drops down the order or drops out altogether. So we need to find two opening batsmen. Now, if Warner's fit, he becomes one of those and Australia desperately need him to play. Uh, so we can we can assume at this stage that he's going to be fit and that he's going to play. Then you need to find his partner. So as I said, there are there are a lot of let's say let's call them experts who believe that the only change Australia will made might make for Sydney will be Warner in for Burns, and that Wade will retain his spot at the top of the order, and that Travis Head will retain his spot at five, and Cameron Green will retain his spot at six. So that's the first possibility. Then we have the second possibility where they decide that Matthew Wade must uh, withdraw from the opening position and we need to find another opening batsman. Now, if that was the case, you would have to make a choice between either Marcus Harris, who has had a very good start to the series again, uh, even though his test career 
has been solid without being able to go on and, and turn good starts into big scores? Or do you go with the, the wonderkind, um, Will Pekowski, who, for various reasons, probably should have been playing for the last two years, but whether it be through mental health issues or whether it be through concussion issues, has yet to play for Australia. That's going to be a big choice. Um, and then, of course, if that's the way Australia decide to go, then you've got to find a spot, one spot, for two players, which is the number five position, which would then become a shootout between either Travis Head or Matthew Wade. And that's given that they stick with Cameron Green, who has shown enough so far that he needs to be persisted with um, to give him a chance to settle into that number six position. So where do we go and what is Australia's best lineup? In the long run, I think I don't know I don't know what the selectors will do. I think if the past is going to be used uh, as a guide, they will make the easy choice for them, and that will just be to bring Warner in and leave Burns out, and then that will be the only change they make, and they will hope that it all works out for them. Um, I think it's already shown in this series that that isn't going to work, and we're going to have to make a tough decision. The selectors are going to have to man up and they're going to have to decide that they need to open with two openers. Now, again, that then brings in the conversation, is Will Pekowski an opener? Uh, or do we, or does he need to come in down the order and be able to work his way into the test team down the order like what usually happens with all of our young players? That's not to say that it shouldn't happen any other way. Um, Shubman Gill has came into the last test and he opened and looked comfortable enough. Uh, and it didn't worry him the fact that it was his debut test at all. So I, I don't see a problem with Pekowski opening if that's the position that he decides he wants to play in. And that's where he's batted for Victoria this year, along with Marcus Harris. So... Does the decision then come down to whether we play Harris or Pekowski or Wade? As I said, I think the selectors are likely to just make the easy choice and just make the one change. If it was up to me, and you've got a problem here where you've got, in this series so far, Matthew Wade has opened in four innings. He's made 111 runs at 27.75, which is not great. Travis Head has made 62 runs at 20.66, which is not great. Uh, Head's 30-odd in the first innings in Melbourne. Looked great until he got out. His other two innings have been a bit so-so. Matthew Wade has fought hard at the top of the order and has, on three occasions, at least given his team the start they needed. But he's not an opening batsman. But then again, is he the guy you go back to at five if you're going to introduce someone else? Is it possible that we could go out with an order in Sydney that says it's a good track, it's not a flat track, but it's a good track, and we could go out and say, well, let's open with Warner and let's open with Harris, and then we'll bat Labashane at three, Smith at four, we're going to bat Pekowski at five, and we're going to bat Green at six. Give our young guys a chance on a reasonable tracks against an Indian attack that has had at least two of its main bowlers pulled out because of injury, and see what they can do. I, to me, 
sooner or later we have to see if our young batsmen are ever going to stand up to it. And that's including Harris in that equation. If we have Harris, Pukowski and Green all in that team, then we're soon going to see if they've got what it takes to become a test batsman. And at 1-1 in a four-test series with two tests to play, there's no better place to find out whether they're going to make some runs for us or not. It's a Festivus miracle! So what happens if we now get to the point where Queensland don't get the fourth test and they decide to play the fourth test in Sydney as well? As of today, the crowds are going to be restricted to 25% capacity, which is going to be around 10,000 crowd in each day, which is more than enough for an atmosphere for the players and to keep everything moving. The Indian players, Indian camp, sorry, are starting to circulate uh, some sort of pressure on them not wanting to move to Brisbane after this test match to go back into a bubble-like situation and are pushing, I think, to have the fourth test relocated to the SCG. Is this a ploy more for the bubble and the fact that the players are sick and tired of being in the bubble? Or is it because they would like to avoid playing at the Gabba in a deciding test match where Australia hasn't lost in over 30 years? You'd have to think probably it's a little bit of column A and column B. Although the BCCI did initially agree to play at the Gabba when the original draw came out. But there's a lot to take in in regards to the fact that the players, and that's not just Indian players, the Australian players as well, have been in this COVID bubble now for months. Uh, Certainly the ones, Australians who played in the IPL, uh, they were in a bubble situation because they firstly went to England and they played the one-day series in England, flew directly to um, the UAE and were in the bubble there, and then flew home and were in the bubble here, and won't have seen family for almost six months by the time that this finally gets to conclusion. And that's before you go into uh, Big Bash after that and then possible tours of South Africa and New Zealand. So the players are getting must have to be getting to the point where they're absolutely sick of seeing the inside of a hotel room uh, and uh, training grounds, and that's about it. So you can understand how that would be affecting the players and the fact that they want to avoid going into further, uh, stronger lockdowns if that's the case that they have to face if they go to Brisbane. By the same token, you'd have to say that given that this has been arranged this way, surely the players have to get to the point where they say that their move to Brisbane is the final move they have before the Indian players fly home. So at least it's a it's a step closer rather than just sitting around in Sydney, which at the moment, given the COVID situation, would surely be um, a harder lockdown than they would face in Brisbane. I don't know. I don't look hard enough into that kind of stuff. All I know is that India are making ways that they don't want to go there, and the consensus is either the fact that the players are sick of the bubble or the players want to avoid playing at the Gabba. Both very good reasons and both possibly completely and utterly true. Um, Certainly it would hinder Australia's chances if they don't get to get to the Gabba, but we don't know. I mean, the Indian bowlers surely would love bowling on the Gabba, and their batsmen have already shown 
that they're good enough to handle Australia's pace attack on whatever service they're on. So whether the game goes to Brisbane or not, I don't think in the long run will matter to the series. At the moment, Australia are behind the eight ball and they need to do something about that in Sydney. So who wins the Sydney Test? Well, I tell you at the moment that uh, the weather's going to have a pretty fair um, influence upon the result. Forecast leading up to the first day is not good, and it's been raining for the last three or four days as it is, which would have had to have made preparations for the Test wicket pretty tough. And the forecast for the whole Test isn't real good either, much like two years ago when the last day was completely washed out, which stopped India from trying to attempt to win the series. Uh, 3-1. Um, it'll be an interesting matchup given that Australia's batsmen need to find something and we're just not really sure if they can do it. Surely Steve Smith has to break out of his slump sooner or later um, and he hasn't scored a test century since he was in England over 18 months ago. So they kept him down so far and you'd expect that at some stage he's going to find a way to break away and, and score the runs that he needs to. But it's up to the other Australian batsmen. If Warner comes back to make some, whoever his opening partner is, for Labashane to be able to continue to, to find a way to make runs. But our five and six have really got to try and contribute and contribute well if Australia are going to do well at the SCG. India, I can only assume, will go in with an unchanged 11, apart from the fact that Umesh Yadav will be unfit. Now, they've already got their two all-round spinners in there in Ashwin and Jadeja. Whether they decide to throw cool deep in as well, if the pitch is going to spin, will be interesting. But like I said, given the weather and the preparation, it's unlikely that it will be a raging turner. And uh, so the pressure is therefore on... Boomer to make sure that he can continue to bowl as well as he has. As to the winners, I don't know. Uh, and again, with India's batting, so far Australia have been able to find a way to get Pujara out, whether they can continue to do that. He scored a, a massive 100 in India two years ago, uh, in Sydney two years ago, and he'll be looking to do the same again. And their top order does like to go quickly if they can. Um... If I was a betting man, which I am, I reckon I'd be on the draw for the weather and for the fact that it may hinder the fact that either side can really make a a way to get through. Now, that might seem strange given that Australia has not made any runs and that India as well have collapsed at times to think that the game might go five days. But if the weather does intervene and does cause problems with the amount of overs that are being able to be bowled, then perhaps the batsman can find a way to get through. I'm going to go with the draw, and that will lead us 1-1 going into the fourth test, wherever that may be played, uh, which would be a terrific way to finish the series, given that if India can draw that test, they will retain the trophy. If they win, they retain the trophy, and Australia would have to win to regain the trophy themselves. Just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. Alrighty, thanks for listening in to my massively intelligent and briefly informative third test preview for the test between Australia and India coming up this week.
hopefully we get a lot of the cricket in and hopefully it's a good game and hopefully Australia wins by an innings and about 700 runs. I don't believe any of those things are going to happen. Anyway, thank you for tuning in once again and putting up with my uh, ramblings and hopefully it's enough to bring you back for the next time. Until then, cheers.